Today is Sunday, March 27th, and this is episode 265 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bill, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Good evening, Jerry. How are you, sir? I'm so good. It hurts, as usual. How are you? I'm good. I saw, like, you're using your home treadmill desk, and I think you walked something like, what, 563 miles last week? (laughs) Well, how does that song go? I would walk 500 miles, yeah. Something like that. It's, it's crazy. I I uh, I walked approximately point zero one miles last week. So good for you. I think I I think I'm closing the week out um, just shy of a hundred miles. Jeez, crazy. But hey, good on you. I uh, I should take some some inspiration from that. I, I will tell you, I feel my age though. Um, when, <laughs> at the end of the day, I I I feel my age. Yeah, my, I'm not wearing out my joints. My joints are oh my gosh. pristine. Yeah, go through a lot of shoes too. I'll say that's the other, that's the other big problem. Boy. Uh, anyway, I'm good. Good. It's good to hear. Long. Good to hear. Uh, let's see. Uh, just a reminder that the thoughts and opinions we express on the show are ours and do not represent those of our employers or anyone else, except maybe Very my true. cat. Your cats. Sometimes. Depends on how soon um, you've given them food. Well, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Very true. So quite a quite a lot has happened recently in the uh, in the security world. Wee bit. Just a just a wee bit. So we we have a fair number of stories. Jumping right in, the first one comes from Bank Info Security, and the title here is Google exposes initial access broker ties. To ransomware, there's kind of two interesting aspects to this. One was it it's a it's an article that explains a little in in considerably more depth the concept of initial access brokers, and then secondly how those um, how those access brokers are lever- leveraged by common ransomware gangs these days. So, um, this is a story about. Uh, Google's threat analysis group um, discussing this threat actor called Exotic Lily. And Exotic Lily, what, what's quite interesting about them is I, I would, after having you know, read re, read this article and others about them, it seems to me like um, spear phishing at scale. It's it's yeah. highly targeted. It's it's like mass quantities of highly targeted attacks on organizations and um, in individuals in organizations. Yep. And then they sort of then hand off to another group once they get access. Yes. And I'm assuming that's for money, I would guess. Uh, and I'm, I'm very curious how that financial transaction looks like. Is there a percentage they gain? Is it a flat fee? Is it negotiated? I, I, Do they have contracts? Like, is, right. Is there... Indemnification? Do they get like warranties if if the access dries up or like what? I'm I'm sure those folks out there who like 
have surveyed the dark web uh, have seen these, but I've also seen sites that are auction access. Like, hey, uh, we've got access into McDonald's Corp. Who wants it? Sure. How much are you willing to pay for it? Sure. You know, not saying McDonald's has been hacked recently. I just picked them out of hat, but it is interesting, though. Yeah, but they they're very very focused on very smart and it seems somewhat templatized and sort of scripted. Uh, very successful spear phishing methodologies that they're using for social engineering. Yeah, they, they talk about uh, using legitimate uh, file transfer services like WeTransfer, TransferNow, OneDrive, and others to deliver a lot of their payloads. And actually, not, not only deliver the, their payloads, but also to notify their victims to go and collect, you know, go access the files. Right, because it's not a fake email. It's an actual email. Exactly. From that vendor. It's pretty damn clever. It is. Uh, let's see. They, they, um, they, they also go so far in some cases as to uh, meet with uh, their victims. They, they are apparently pretty focused on business, you know, delivering business proposals as a means of uh, establishing rapport with their victims. Um, they, they've also been seen making, um, basically cloning personas of actual employees using copies of their profile pictures and, and whatnot. Uh, they will uh, create domains that are lookalikes to their victim companies. So if it's like a .com, they'll register to .co. Obviously, if it's available as a, you know, as a means of, again, trying to establish trust, you know, with, what it all leads to is obviously getting the uh, getting the right person within the organization to execute their their uh, their malware, which they then sell to the you know the 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 next party. You know, typically it sounds like uh, usually a ransomware company. That's pretty aggressive uh, and, and pretty effective. You know what we should do is we should get the scammers who pretend to be executives asking for employees to go buy gift cards hooked up with the fake employees these guys set up, and they could just start scamming each other. Oh, that's a great idea. Like a tar pit. I'd be, I'm going to work on that. I, I think that's a business plan. <laughs> total total uh, scam tar pit. I, I like it. I, I do like it. Uh, it there, there's... It's, it's it's an interesting um, expose, I guess I'll say, on on the the tactics that are used here. They don't go into a lot of detail about you know what what they recommend in terms of uh, mitigations, but you can you can kind of um, infer. I think the next story will will have a little bit more um, meat on on what you can do to protect yourselves. But things like um, uh, actual multi-factor authentication. I think this threat actor, as well as some of the others, have been seen um, bypassing SMS through SIM swapping attacks and whatnot. Yeah, it, I think also, like any, it's easy to say, but having zero trust or minimal advice, you know, Minimally useful access for the employees minimizes the blast radius if their host is, is compromised in some way. You know, just here's the interesting thing. The, the initial access is often different than whatever the payload of the next step attack is. So sometimes the solution is 
how do I minimize the blast radius of whatever that next stage is, which could be nearly anything. In this case, it's often, often ransomware, but it doesn't have to be. So it's tough. I, you know, I would say, depending on how this malware is delivered, there's a chance some of your technology could pick it up, whether it's some sort of email security product or some sort of web uh, proxy web, secure web proxy that's scanning downloads. You know, there's a chance. I don't know. Depends on how novel their, their malware is. Indeed. And your endpoint controls, how sharp they are. And ra- ransomware is the thing that's being delivered today, but in the future, and that's, I think, because it's the most profitable uh, a, a end attack type. But I, suppo- right. I, know I suspect that over time, that's going to change. It may change back to espionage or, or something yeah. else. Which is interesting to me because these initial access brokers seem to be happy just with that initial foothold in an environment and then not turning around and executing their own ransomware. So for whatever economic reason it makes sense to them to stay within their core competency and sell off the access to somebody else who has a different core competency. Specialization. And it's specialization and and industrialization, I think, of of attacks um, which which is by the way pretty scary because it it allows them to become really really good at at their craft so inevitably they'll unionize and then we'll go through these battles of insourcing and outsourcing and just in time offshoring and right you know <laughs> the malware supply chain is going to get backed up so we're going to have to ship malwares without critical chips it's, it just it just get ugly I, I like it. It's um, the, the the future seems bright. Yes, <laughs> I for one look forward to the four hundred three local malware authors going on strike. <laughs> I, yeah, it, the quiet time will be very welcome. Picketing outside their local Best Buy. Hell no, we won't code. You know, it'll be good. All right. Next story comes from TechCrunch. Uh, this has obviously been a really big story in the industry over the past week or so. Title here is Octus has hundreds of companies impacted by security breach. We have a couple of couple of stories about, about this one. So Okta, for those who aren't aware, is a access, not to be, commit, not to be confused with the prior uh, access broker, is a legitimate access broker. Uh, that companies can use to um, you know, mediate access into their network applications, cloud environments, and so on. And um, back in January, they apparently were hacked um, by the Lapsus Group. Um, Lapsus is a, um, I would call them, I guess, a, a, a chaotic um, ransomware organization. <laughs> I'm not even sure what what that they fit cleanly into a normal bucket, uh, but they're uh, you know, they're they're unlike a lot of other threat actors. They're pretty, as I said, they're pretty chaotic. They uh, they they very publicly announce who they've hacked. They very publicly um, challenge statements that are made by uh, their victim companies. In this in this particular case, it looks like you know, to the to the best of uh, all the reporting a subcontractor of Okta called Cytel 
who provides customer support functionality for Okta and other companies. One of their employees, apparently their account, some disagreement exactly on what was hacked there, but um, the Lapsus group was able to access one of their customer support reps' uh, uh, accounts into Okta and had access to, um, depending on who you believe, uh, some form of privileged access uh, con- you know, control panel to Jira, um, you know, uh, Jira ticket systems and and other functions. Um, there's, I, 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 I'm a little um, wishy-washy on that because there's some back and forth between Okta and the Lapsus group on exactly what was hacked. Whether it was, was it a laptop or was it a a thin client? What was the level of access? The um, you know that this contractor had was it super admin or was it some limited uh, capability that didn't uh, allow this this uh, subcontractor to actually you know mess with credentials of Octa's end customers? So so over the course of uh, of time, primarily the the past week or so, um, you know again Octa. After Lapsus came out publicly and said that they had hacked Okta, Okta published a statement and said, yeah, we were aware that one of our subcontractors got hacked. Um, they just gave us a report, and we don't think that there's any customers impacted. And so then the back and forth between Okta and Lapsus starts in, in very public, very grand fashion, and uh, including screenshots about things. So in the in the end... As as of now, uh, Okta is saying that about three hundred and seventy ish of their corporate customers were in, were potentially impacted. Now, impact the definition of impacted is not defined, which is kind of concerning. Yeah, it's it's been a crazy one, and I I, I saw another article. I don't know if we're linking to that. Okta finally came out and said, "Okay, we." We probably should have handled the communications on this a little better, and uh, they they seem to realize that they got a whole bunch of people all over the industry very very concerned, and they have not done a good job of soothing anyone's concerns or giving them useful reasonable information to go assess their own environment. But I will say, watching as much of the open source feeds as I could and watching as much of Twitter as I could. I didn't see any other companies come out saying they were impacted by this, no. which I would have expected on some of these other widespread issues like this. I, so they may be correct in saying that it was a very contained issue, but I, I, it's tough to kind of really trust them completely with the way they've rolled out their comms on this. Yeah, yeah. Now, I, I, I think... If you there's a whole lot that's been written, and I will include the the uh, the bleeping computer article in in the show notes here about about their um, troubled <laughs> disclosure. Um, I'm not entirely uh, opposed to their interpretation of what happened back in January. You know that they, they apparently did, in fact detect some anomalous activity happening with this subcontractor employees access and then they, they took you know what they thought was swift at swift 
uh, action to lock it out. Uh, Okta told them, told, um, I'm sorry, Cytel told Okta that they were going to go hire a, uh, a forensic company to, to investigate. So, you know, as far as uh, Okta was concerned, it seemed like it was contained and Cytel was going to go figure out what happened and obviously fix it. But, you know, fast forward six or, or eight weeks and it looks like the you know the, the the access actually what what they detected at the time was apparently not all that had happened that was some somewhat later in the in the chain um and and i think part of the issue that i and a lot of the industry have with this this is is they they place such a sensitive part octa i, sh- I should say plays such a sensitive role in the the it function and the security function of so many different companies and and for them to not be so forthcoming, um, you know that if all as you said, all indications are there there were no animals harmed in the making of this incident, but it could have easily not been the case. Yeah, and, it's and in they the wouldn't of, have known. Yeah, and it's in the middle of so many companies' incredibly sensitive authentication process. Right. Exactly. And yeah, I. Yeah, when you start to threat model this out, Okta getting breached is a pretty much close to worst case scenario. Right. If if they're as deeply integrated as they are as they want to be in most companies, you know, authentication not just internally but with third parties, with SAML and a bunch of other stuff like an OAuth, and they're very, very, very deeply integrated into all of that authentication. And if you cannot trust it, that's like a pillar that a lot of our cybersecurity foundations built on. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's quite problematic. Uh, for now, for their part, the uh, the Lapsus uh, team has publicly said that Okta wasn't actually their intended victim. Their intended victim was Okta's customers, which again is kind of concerning. Now, Okta's Okta is saying, you know, the type of access this. Uh, this contractor had was the ability to facilitate password resets. They couldn't change the password. Like they couldn't, the, the, this, this contractor couldn't actually like set the pass, set a, pa- a customer password to some defined string. They could reset it so that, or they could uh, initiate a reset that the end customer could then go act on. And, and similar, I guess with, uh, with multi-factor, but you know, those are those are. You, you, in order to 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 really understand the risk, you have to understand the details, and I don't think we really have a good handle on the details there. But taking Okta at their word, they're saying that you know that this person wouldn't have had the privileges to actually allow someone access into their customers' networks. So maybe a. Um, you know, maybe a near miss, I guess, or near hit, depending on your philosophy. But it was a heck of a wake-up call. I thought, was it Cloudflare came out with a lot of snark too about about Okta. Yeah, well, one of the uh, one of the uh, screenshots that Lapsus posted actually had um, you know showed Cloudflare, right? Uh, it, so it kind of implied that Cloudflare was somehow implicated in in. Um, in, in the attack and Cloudflare basically came out like 
with their fangs shown <laughs> saying you know this was this was uh you know what wasn't bad and by the way it was all internal stuff had nothing to do with the service that we offer to customers and we have multiple layers of authentication we don't just trust okta and oh by the way we're now reevaluating our relationship with okta yeah Basically. okta by the way their stock went down to about 20 percent yeah so it was uh was not a not a good week for them for sure I'm, and by the way i'm sure it is uh is a, a rough time to be in security in acta right now and Cytel for that matter yeah you know we're, we're not talking too deeply about it but i think their ceo was the one who made the first statement about it and you know i think if you're looking at how to do crisis comms it's a good example of not necessarily what to do yes yes they uh certainly did underestimate i think the uh the a the the extent of the breach and then b the um <laughs> the, the boisterousness of the threat actor well and and also the various customers out there who are like you need to tell us a lot more oh sure Absolutely. You know, because right now I'm stuck proving a negative to my executives and I can't do that very well with what you've given me. Well, I, I definitely agree. But I think at the time, if the CEO was right, then there probably wouldn't have been a lot more questions. Correct. Um, but yeah, this this is. Um, I, they're, they're one of, I've read so many articles, they all kind of bleed together now, but. One of the articles uh, stated that someone at, at Okta said that they, in hindsight, should have really squeezed Cytel much harder in in the, the January time frame, right after the breach, mm. to figure out like what exactly happened, rather than waiting for the report. Yeah. Mm. So, um, you know, live, live and learn, but this is... Uh, you know, good good example of what can happen when you know when you have this uh, it, highly central uh, centralized risk function, right? Um, now, again, hopefully, Okta comes through this and they're better for it, and, and the rest of the industry learns from it too. But at the end of the day, like this is a, this is a wake up call. You do have a concentration of risk, but I would say. It's for most companies better than what they were doing without this sort of service. Now, to Cloudflare's point, there's ways you can architect this so it's not a single point of failure. But right. I think they're a very sophisticated operation. I mean, I would. I, I just want to be clear in saying that I still think something like service like Okta brings a lot of value. And and you know, I'm not. I don't have any ties to Okta. They're not paying me to say that. You can look whatever vendor you want. It's kind of like a password manager. It, yeah, it's a it's a concentration of risk, but it's probably going to reduce far more risk than it introduces. Oh, and if you sure. focus on only one side of the equation, uh, it's not a good holistic view of when and how to use it. For sure, most most organizations don't have the sophistication to put together their own service and manage their own service like like Okta does in in a in a responsible way. So, completely right. agree. Uh, so moving on, um, there's a related article 
about also about lapsus, and this also comes from TechCrunch, and the title is Microsoft Concerns Lapsus Breach After Hackers Publish Bing Cortana Source Code. I was disappointed that Clippy was not included, but, you know, I guess there we go. Well, Clippy's still involved in all the lawsuits. That's true. That's true. So, um, I mean, after after the descent into drugs and alcohol, it, he really did follow the path of like a child star that that grew up bad. So, you know, maybe maybe when Clippy is out of rehab, Clippy's like working at Walmart now, isn't he? Something like that. I don't think I'm allowed to say. Okay. Honestly, I think I think we need to respect Clippy's privacy at this time. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right, so similar set of circumstances as to Okta, and a Microsoft employee's workstation was apparently compromised, and that employee had access to some source code for for Bing and Cortana uh, and, and Maps. Now, Microsoft obviously is coming out of the gate saying you know, their security response team detected this very quickly. They responded to it very quickly, and none of their security is dependent on their source code being kept private, so they're not seeing this as a um, a risk that the world needs to react to. Um, what I thought was most interesting is the blog post that Microsoft wrote, because this is a, you know, Microsoft obviously has their own threat intelligence team, and they had been tracking the Lapsus group. They call it Dev-0537, which rolls right off the tongue, um, for for quite some time. And now they're, you know, now they're a, a, a victim of it. And they go through, it's linked from the TechCrunch article, they go through a, it's a many-page write-up about what happened to them and how this actor typically operates and the various things you as a organization can do to help protect yourself. Um, they, they go through a, a really deep explanation of the, uh, the types of activities that the lapsus team um, you know, uses including by the way trying to hire employ or recruit employees of victim companies you know for pay to hand over access uh, VPN access or RDP access into company networks or if you don't have either of those uh, to to install a help desk type agent software agent on on the company's computer, for, again for pay, and they they publicly advertise this <laughs> at Lapsus Jobs, which is terrifying. Um, again, no indication of how this is how either Cytel or Microsoft were initially breached, but. You know, they, they it's uh, certainly a possibility. They do also go through quite a lot of description about how Lapsus has been seen um, using all manner, of, um, many different manners of um, initial intrusion, like scanning source code repositories for credentials, uh, SIM swapping attacks, um, and and so on. Like they are 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 apparently pretty crafty, and SIM swapping to get SMS pushed. Tokens, I'm guessing. Correct. Yeah, to yeah. bypass uh, 
MFA. They also talk about how they, um, I think it was both this one and the uh, uh, the, the prior a, uh, initial access group. Um, one of their one of their tactics is uh, they will. They're hoping that one of the the MFA uh, protocols used by their victim is the, you know, the, the pop up on a mobile device that says approve this access, and they just spam it, like over and over and over and over and over and over again, hoping that the victim just gets tired of it and <laughs> hits accept. Which I would bet a lot would. Right. It's probably quite successful. Right. Yeah. Pretty. Um, Pretty interesting. So they they go through. I I thought the most interesting aspect of this, obviously, other than you know the, the detail they go through in the write up, is the recommendations. And and I felt like like we haven't seen great set of recommendations for a while, and, and now we're starting to see them again. So so here here we go. Uh, require MFA for all users coming from lo- from locations, including perceived trusted environments in all internet-facing infrastructure, even those coming from on-premise systems. That is, um, I-, I think that's a departure from what a lot of or- how a lot of organizations view themselves. They s- they see their internal environment as, as somewhat trusted, which goes against it, the whole zero trust you know paradigm. I, I, I mean, it makes perfect sense because the endpoint. Right. Is what's often initially compromised. Exactly. Yeah, I completely agree. Leverage more secure implementations such as FIDO tokens or Microsoft Authenticator with number matching. And and by the way, the number matching is where um, you have to type into your MFA uh, application on your phone or, or what have you the the number that's displayed on the screen. You can't. There isn't just a link to hit approve, which is uh, which is useful. Um, and avoid any te- telephony-based MFA, like phone calls or, or SMS messages. Uh, they go through some, you know, Microsoft Azure-specific um, mitigations, like uh, th- they can help avoid using easily guessed passwords and, and to, um, to help avoid password spray attacks. Uh, they talk about leveraging passwordless authentication methods like Windows Hello, uh, FIDO tokens and whatnot. Uh, implementing user and, and sign-in risk, risk-based policies that block high-impact user actions like device enrollment and MFA registration. It's pretty good. Uh, break glass accounts should be stored offline and not be present in any sort of online password vaulting solution. That's, in, that's an interesting one. That... That's one I can really dig into and debate a bit, you know, especially when you've got a distributed workforce and offline how, like in an office only, so somebody has to go to the office. <laughs> I don't know about that one and how secure would it be? And that one gives me a little heartburn. I, you know, I, I don't know exactly what drove the inclusion of that one. I do know that in, in the write-up, they talk about how one of the, activities the lapsus team is seen doing after they compromise an environment and elevate their permissions to administrators they go and they remove all other administrators so let's play this out so you get you get an admin account that's compromised that gives them access to the password vault where now they can access potentially things like break glass account 
right. credentials. Right. But what is a little unclear to me is if they go and remove all other accounts, does that also remove the break glass accounts that are not stored in the password? Right. Mm. So obviously there's, there's more to it than just that. You know, the, again, the, the net point is being able to take back control of your environment if right. something like this were to happen. I, I guess my, my, I'll let, let it go after this. This is one of those balance of risk questions that I, I really have to think along hard about mm-hmm. the, of, of that recommendation. Anyway, carry on. Uh, let's see. Use automated reports and workbooks such as the Azure Monitor workbooks for reports for detailed analysis and risk distribution. Is it amazing That's, how many Microsoft products can help you? Yeah, uh, it it really is. I mean, look, every security vendor out there is. I know. I know. Um, that that seems very um, very narrowly focused on on Azure. Uh, remind employees that enterprise or workplace credentials should not be stored in browsers or password vaults secured with personal credentials. They do, by the way, they do in, in this article, they they, uh, they talk about how, I don't know if they actually saw this or if it's a hypothetical uh, possibility, but the, um, uh, the, the susceptibility or the vulnerability of corporate stuff being protected by personal stuff. And some of the, that personal stuff might be like your personal phone that you use for work, right? If, you know, you might have an awesome security program at your at your organization and you have an, you know, you have an MDM program and you have SMS multi-factor authentication and you have employees using, again, their, their personal cell phone with an account with Verizon or T-Mobile with a really crappy password that makes it super easy to, you know, to, to move that phone number somewhere else. I think that's just one example. Um, you know, if, if you have employees with one password, their own personal one password, you know, storing their company, company uh, intranet login ID and, and password in it, and they have a terrible master password for their for their uh, their personal pa- uh, master password you know that's a that's another example uh, but point is trying to help drive that separation between you know personal stuff and work stuff so that your organizational secrets and access controls aren't dependent on what people do at home Uh, let's see. Clearly, something happened with a password manager. Yeah, the, I, it's. <laughs> We've seen it a couple times mentioned in this. Uh, they do. They say do do not include location based exclusions. MFA exclusions allow an actor with only one factor to set a, for a set of identities that bypass MFA requirements that they can fully compromise a single identity. So I think what they're what they're really saying there is. Um, you, you need to you know, apply that consistently, right? Don't don't not challenge someone with a multi-factor. Um, don't sh- don't not challenge someone for a multi-factor token just because they appear to be coming from Atlanta, where your headquarters is. Right? You should always consistently uh, challenge them. 
Uh, let's see what other they they go through. By the way, if you if you use Office three sixty five, they have quite a lot of detail about things that you can enable in Office three sixty five to help mitigate the threat. They they talk about some of this stuff. I think could be generalized and used in in other environments, like um, looking for sign ins from VPS known VPS providers and known. Um, well, they specifically mentioned NordVPN, but I'll abstract that to say like known uh, VPN providers. And then they call it IP, um, IP address teleportation. I've heard it described as impossible travel, you know, where you see Jerry log in from Atlanta, um, you know, in at one time and then 15 minutes later he logs in from India. Well, you know that can't happen. Unless we invent teleporters or something like that. Yeah. I mean, if you spun up a VPN provider with an endpoint that's only terminated in India, you, it could be you. It would just be weird. Correct. But then you would have to, like, a, a reasonable company would have to say, why are you doing that, Jerry? Right. It's still, it's still not something you want to allow. But it's like, I could conceive of a few reasons. Maybe you've got some sort of geolocation you're testing like you've got rules to not do business with certain countries and you want to test if your WAF is blocking those. I mean, that, there's a few yeah. valid it's, use cases, but... It's not guaranteed to be malicious, but it's, it's pretty... It's a, yeah, it's definitely something that you should look into. Anyway, great great write-up by Microsoft. Um, you know, hopefully Bing will recover from this... <laughs> Grave, grave intrusion. I um, no comment. <laughs> All right. Um, next, next story. Uh, this is the uh, next is the continuing saga of what is now being called protestware. The title is uh, the title of the story from from Ars Technica: Sabotage Code Added to Popular NPM Package Wiped Files in Russia and Belarus. Uh, we've talked about this a couple of times. It's another another example of this happening. The uh, the author and maintainer of a pretty popular uh, uh, JavaScript package included not before we saw this, you know, putting you know, spewing out words of support for the Ukraine and whatnot, right? But this time, it went further, and if the endpoint appeared to be in Russia or Belarus and actually started deleting files. And, and the author did some rudimentary uh, obfuscation of the, the code that did the deletions. And so it wasn't like readily apparent what it was ultimately going to do. The, the problem I think is, and, and by, by the way, I think this is something that we're going to have to reckon with sooner or later it's it's kind of wrecking the the trust in open source and and to some extent maybe that trust was misplaced all along um but you know here's another example of you know I, i'll call it a you know a, a supply chain attack right but your supply chain happens to be an open source provider and and it's you know, it's really problematic, I think, because for many years, so many people 
have had this view that open source was intrinsically more secure because it was open source. Anybody could look at it. And therefore, uh, as Linus Torvalds famously said, you know, all uh, all bugs are shallow with many eyes. I think it was Linus or maybe it was Eric Raymond. I forget who it was. But anyway, um, that's no, that pro- was Abraham Lincoln in 1865. Well, that could be. On, could be. I read it on the internet. Ben Franklin. Uh, anyway, that's not that's not all that important. Some, <laughs> somebody smarter than me said it at one point, but it is dependent on act, somebody actually looking at it, and I don't think that often and happens. I think people it, just download this. Shit, sorry, <laughs> looking and at install it, it. Not only looking at it, but accurately auditing it and understanding it. And right. have you ever seen some of the obfuscation contests? Good luck. Yeah, yeah. And they, I mean, they, they, they do point out in some of the articles. I don't think it's necessarily in this one, but some there are some, um, you know, pretty more detailed write ups about how how this author went and did obfuscate it. And like you, you, you wouldn't immediately catch your eye that it was going to go delete a bunch of files. Yeah, he didn't comment a big section of here's my section. I'm going to delete a bunch of files. Right. Yeah. The thing that I thought kind of interesting and a little scary is it was trying to do geolocation based on Russia and Belarus. Great. But some of that is a little sketchy. The geolocation functionality is not 100%. No, not by a long shot. And, I mean, I got to think some Ukrainian IP addresses might get labeled as Russia and vice versa. Uh, And, you know, that whole area, I don't know. I just... I think there's an over overabundance of trust in like geolocation of IP addresses because we've seen that be all sorts of voodoo. So, yeah, I mean, one, you, just, you just never know when those things with the best of intentions get out of control. Yeah, I mean, it's regardless. It this was a this was a intentionally inserted malware attack, you know, by the author of the of an otherwise legitimate application that is used right. like really pervasively. I think this, I said it, they said it was um, uh, downloaded more than 22 million times. It was included in 21,000 applications. Jeez. So, um, you know, the, the, this is, uh, I, the, there are no easy answers. We talked about this in the past. Like this is where, we are starting to see in the U.S. and I think some other other governments too, starting to push the the whole concept of software bill of materials. But you know, the reality is that only takes you so far. It doesn't solve the problem of an author of an open source package that you're relying on slipping something malicious in there, right? Like, like you know that that is the part that we haven't really reckoned with yet. Now I think we can. What's going to end up happening is we have to do some deeper levels of testing. I well, but, but even that is not like. By the way, like we could have tested that and it would have worked fine because we're not in Russia or Belarus, <laughs> or have or have an IP address that looks like we're in Russia or Belarus. I think, I don't know. The initial thought is this may be a problem that isn't big enough to worry about yet that's probably wishful thinking on my part but 
it's a really, really, really tough problem to solve. I maybe you just play the hey, hopefully somebody else will find it first, and I'll wait and you know not grab new versions for a version or two and hope somebody else stumbles upon the bad stuff. Game. I, I do think that's. I mean, I, <clears throat> there's probably that. I think what you, we may end up seeing too is a. I don't know how, to, how best to describe it, a consolidation of of open source into something that's slightly less than open source, but managed by a, a more centralized so group. Curated sources? Yeah, like, a, like exactly, like a curated um, and, and, quote, managed you know, portfolio stop, of open would, source. Would not have stopped this? No. Completely trusted author. Completely trusted piece of code, well known. That's a good well point. Well deployed. Yep. Uh, I mean, I mean unless, unless that curation process has, like, you know, requires code reviews. Um, how realistic are you going to pick this up? I, well, I, if you have a reasonable code review process, now, uh, granted, like, there's going to be. There's a level of reasonableness, right? If yeah, if, a- if if this was the change that this person submitted, right? This the author submitted was this set of changes, and that was what was being reviewed by a code reviewer. I I have a feeling that if you had somebody who was pretty smart, they would have realized what it was. But I, I take your point. Who's going to pay for it? That's the problem. That's the that, that I mean I mean we're starting to see by the way like if you if you rewind um, some the this is already happening to a certain extent as a result of some of the things that happened over the past couple of years like with OpenSSL and mm-hmm. and whatnot the the Linux Foundation and then I think we have in uh, in Europe the European government starting to fund some open source initiatives and whatnot but. Um, I, it is. I mean, it, it like by definition is no longer free software. I mean, maybe it's free to you, but like people are now at at some level being paid to maintain it. It's a really tough problem. It is. I, 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 I genuinely do not understand what this is going to look like in ten years, but I don't think it's going to look like it does today. Not from a not from a corporate perspective, maybe from a hobbyist perspective, but from a corporate perspective, I really think that in ten years' time, the way companies and businesses, especially in different sectors, interact with open source, I think is going to be dramatically different. Hopefully, you'll be retired by then, and you can just pontificate. Yeah, I'll be in my beach chair, yelling yelling at the sky. So like just like today, but with less work. True. Very true. <laughs> uh, all right. So anything more to say on that one? No, I I have thoughts, but they're not good, well defined thoughts, so I'll just we'll move on. All right. The the last um the last two articles are um kind of the same uh two views of the same thing. Um the, the U.S. government, uh, the, the the president, as part of the um, the uh, recent appropriations bill, 
uh, signed into law a uh, a component that designated the Department of Homeland Security CSUNS, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Administration, which is just an awful name, by the way. Like it has like anything that you have security so many times. It's bad, bad form, in my view. Um, they were anointed to um, to to create a set of regulations that require 16 categories of critical infrastructure companies or or critical infrastructure organizations to report uh, breaches within four days. I'm sorry, within three days, 72 hours. uh, Report paying a ransom within one day and uh, providing a material update to a previously disclosed incident uh, within uh, also within one day what it means to report is yet to be determined what it you know who is regulated and not they call them covered entities that's not yet defined and what a covered incident which is reportable is also not yet defined the the this law requires CISA to create proposed rulemaking which has to be published, I think, within 18 months. So within within the next 18 months, we'll see, you know, we'll see what what's going to happen here. Some number of organizations are now going to have an obligation to report incidents within uh, within 72 hours. The other article uh, is about. Um, the SEC doing something very similar. The SEC is working towards a requirement for a four-day notification for effectively any public company, um, investment institution, and so on. So, if you know what, what I think we're seeing is the types of in, of um, data breach notification or security incident notification laws that have been uh, put into law like with the New York DFS, the GDPR, uh, the, the CCPA in California, we're starting to see like there's going to be very few pockets where that isn't applicable. Like er- almost every organization, I think, in, in, some re- in some regard is going to have to report uh, incidents, data breaches or, or otherwise, within a, a defined time period. And, and, and I think that's going to change. Um, it's going to change some things. It's, I, I know that the GDPR has been uh, pretty contentious in this area for a lot of organizations. And I will say, by the way, this is something that, that's kind of near and dear to my heart. Like when you look at the, the, the data privacy regulators in, in uh, the European Union, like the, the, the fines that, are levied are almost exclusively like the worst fines are levied for those that don't report data breaches. It's not the crime. It's covering up the crime. Right. I, my initial reaction is I hate everything about this. (laughs) Yeah. It seems inevitable. (laughs) Well, it's like the the SEC one. I can somewhat understand because it's, it's informing, investors of things they need to know now what material means is a whole different conversation like what is a material breach and i don't think like we're 
we would need like six lawyers in about three days to unpack that conversation. Oh yeah. Uh, um, yeah. But so I, I kind of get that. Like I've been, if I'm an investor, but I just like these time frames. Having been involved in plenty of incidents and plenty of situations, is like, how distracting is that going to be to people trying to solve the problem? And you know, because it's not going to stop with disclosure. It's it's inevitably going to go into now prescribed remediation or methodologies or whatever. Uh, the whole thing is just icky. But I also think it's unavoidable. I think it's there's no stopping that train. No, there, there definitely isn't. The, the, it remains to be seen what happens next. I mean, the, the GDPR has been out for quite some time, and, and there hasn't been another shoe to drop yet, although there is, an, there is the uh, pending Data Act, which, by the way, if any of you are doing business in, in Europe, We'll go look that one up. It does the same thing to non-personal data as it does to personal data. So super, going to be super fun for for people who have IoT things and you know non-personal data. Uh, but it you know hasn't we haven't seen kind of that next next shoe dropping uh, in you know, after, in the wake of the GDPR. I think what's going to be more problematic is like. Knowing all the people and in, in regulators that you have to notify, like if you're a you know if you're a multinational organization, like I mean, let's just say Okta, I'm going to be you know super controversial here. Like, so if Okta is doing business in you know the U.S. and and they're a public company, and then they're also doing business in serving customers in Europe, like. They have to notify Europe in seventy-two hours. They have to notify, you know, the SEC within four days. And they're maybe in the future they're considered critical infrastructure, so they have to notify CISA within three days. And then maybe they have a different notification under the California law. Like this is going to descend into madness. Oh, you're just going to have a bunch more people hanging out doing GRC stuff, or. Or what we're going to do, here's what we're going to do. We're going to start a SaaS provider. And there's going to be an API. And the API, like you're going you're gonna to make a call into the API when you have a data breach. Okay. And it's going to tell, you have to, you have to say where all of your customers are. And then it just automatically notifies all of the regulators on your behalf in seconds. That's brilliant. That's like when you list your home, it goes out and puts on all the listing services at once. Right. That's brilliant. It, oh, my God. Why didn't I think of this sooner? Mm. Wow. Okay. All right. Well, um, I, I think I'm going to cut the show off now so I can go um, go get some funding for my new business idea. That's, that's pretty good. That's pretty or, good. Or dinner. I don't know which. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, all the best ideas trumped by dinner. That's how, that's how it gets when you get old. Like, this is why startups are run by young pups, because they don't get distracted by, like, you know, the early bird special. Joint pain. I, I'd love to go do that, but damn it, my knee hurts. And Madlock is almost on. That's true. 
Uh, you know, there's a whole generation of people who probably have no idea what Malak is. Yeah, that's it. sad. That's really sad. All right, I, uh, I if you if you're still here, I sincerely appreciate your attention. I hope you get a lot out of these shows, even even the ridiculous parts. Uh, thank you very much. And I, as a reminder, you can follow the show on um, online at defensivesecurity.org. You can follow Mr. Callot on Twitter at Lurg. And me on Twitter at Malicious Link. And with that, we will talk again soon. Have a great week, everybody. Bye-bye. Take care.